Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Tabi Solohuku, Wisani Matemula and Tami Kuza. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Central African Republic government urged to probe human rights abuses and South Sudan peace talks set to resume in Addis Ababa. In economics, Mozambique may raise coal tax and in sports news, Australian cricket team up for a tough challenge. But first up, the news with Tabiso Lehuku. Lulu. France is likely to extend its military mission in Central African Republic. French Defense Minister Yann Yves Ledrian says his country is seeking an extension uh, to the UN mandated six month mission, saying it was probably the best way to ensure a peaceful political transition. France has had 1,600 soldiers in Central African Republic since December. It says the goal is a minimum of security, but even that has been hard worn as Christian militias clash with mostly Muslim Seleka rebels. Yesterday, local soldiers turned on a man in their midst that stabbed and stormed him to death, accusing him of being a member of the disbanded Seleka rebel group. At least 22 people have been killed in a raid in central Nigeria in the second such attack in the area since this week. Gunmen opened fire in the predominantly Muslim village of Mavo in a plateau state in an apparent warning. At least 30 people were killed in two mainly Christian villages in the nearby Riyom district in a similar raid. Plateau state has a long history of ethnic and religious violence between Muslim and Christians. Meanwhile, the Red Cross says tens of thousands of people in Nigeria are missing out on vital services because of the conflict with the areas where Boko Haram operates worse affected. It says it has helped at least 40,000 people hit by the Islamist insurgency in the northeast by religious and ethnic tensions in central Nigeria and by crime in the oil-rich southern Delta region. Head of the humanitarian bodies delegation in Nigeria, Zoran Jovanovich, says the problem is worse in the northeast, which has borne the brunt of Boko Haram violence and the military response. 
A new round of talks aimed at ending South Sudan's conflict will be held in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa on Monday. The talks come at a time when the United Nations has beefed up its peacekeeping troops in South Sudan, where a ceasefire remains in place despite reports that it has been violated by both sides. James Shimanula reports. The talks in Addis Ababa are also expected to be attended by seven senior South Sudan politicians who have flown to Nairobi less than a week ago. Already the Sudanese have been granted political asylum by Kenyan authorities. African diplomats in Addis Ababa say during the talks participants from South Sudan government and representatives of former fugitive Vice President Riek Machar will float to the table the idea of both sides sharing power in Juba with a view to ending the conflict. The South African government has called on all citizens not to abuse their right to demonstrate. Deputy Minister in the Presidency, Robert Bobela, was speaking at a workshop hosted by the Southern African Liaison Office on the lessons learned from elections in the region. This comes as more and more cases of protesters uh, uh, being killed by police continue to make headlines. South Africa will hold its fifth general elections this year. Chutongobeni has more. Deputy Minister in the South African Presidency, Obed Bubela, says it's every South African citizen's constitutional right to demonstrate. However, this right shouldn't be abused by destroying buildings. We want to call on South Africans that the right to demonstrate, the right to protest is a constitutional guaranteed right, but don't abuse it. Do not destroy property. Don't ban your libraries, your schools, your clinics. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A new round of talks aimed at ending South Sudan's conflict will be held in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa, on Monday. The talks come at a time when the United Nations has beefed up its peacekeeping troops in South Sudan, where a ceasefire remains in place, despite reports that it has been violated by both sides. Channel Africa's James Shimanyula reports. The talks in Addis Ababa are also expected to be attended by seven senior South Sudan politicians who have flown to Nairobi less than a week ago. Already the Sudanese have been granted political asylum by Kenyan authorities. African diplomats in Addis Ababa say during the talks participants from South Sudan government and representatives of former fugitive Vice President Riek Machar will float to the table the idea of both sides sharing power in Juba with a view to ending the conflict. Already the Horn of Africa regional body IGAD has put in place a team that will monitor a ceasefire. The team is led by Ethiopian Major General Gebre Sabeme Nebrahatu, who hints that the talks will lead to peace. The parties are committed, they are ready to resolve the conflict in a peaceful way. Therefore, we are so uh, very optimistic that everything will be smooth. 
While the people of South Sudan eagerly wait for the talks to take place, the United Nations has sent 266 Nepalese peacekeepers to South Sudan. This brings to 12,500 the number of UN troops there. As has been said, a ceasefire is already in place in South Sudan, with reports that it has been violated by both sides. Here are voices of South Sudanese citizens on the ceasefire. Priscilla Amani, a 26-year-old teacher in Wau, had this to say. I believe that that agreement is going to really work and maybe uh, people are also going to be liberated from the ongoing crisis that is really happening in the country. Duane Papaye Duane, a 52-year-old farmer in Wau, metaphorically described the ceasefire as passing clouds. Ceasefire will not work because even today, the government forces have attacked the rebel position in Tonglei State. Stephen Kual, aged 37, a businessman in Wau, says, I think it's a good sign forward because the two sides must come together so that they see the way forward. And it's very important for them to stop the killing of innocent people because I'm sure those who are dying are the civilians and the very ones that are directly affected by this uh, ongoing uh, fighting. Jasper Mabiore, 31-year-old engineering student at the University of Juba, is doubtful that the ceasefire will hold. I'm really very pessimistic because what I know is both sides uh, will still amass troops and then still there will be confrontation because it is a matter of faith but not a matter of signing agreements. Rafael Malute, middle-aged plumber in Juba, thinks that the government may not observe the ceasefire. He explains why. I'm not very sure whether the ceasefire agreement is going to be implemented and the major setback will be from the side of the government. Yes, because there are a bundle of issues that government would not like to fave away for fees. Malut singled out atrocities as one of the issues that the government may not be able to deal with and, as he put it, may want to sweep under the carpet despite pressure from human rights organizations and the international community. Josephina Kechakole Nasi Juba, aged 28, also underscored the Agency of Restoration of Peace in Africa's newest nation. We want the peace to come back as usual to our country. Ephraim Majoka, a 24-year-old taxi driver in Ijuba, says despite the ceasefire, the root cause of killings that occurred must be investigated. The root cause of the problem and the kind of destruction that have been made against uh, South Sudanese has not been fine. A 58-year-old fisherman in Wau Moses Rogo actually fears that once the ceasefire is violated, former fugitive Vice President Riek Machar may not be able to control his forces. I have one fear uh, that uh, I don't know how the rebel is going to, to manage his forces because we hear that there's a group of people supporting Riek and my fear whether it'll be possible for the rebel real to control their forces. Hitler James Kuhl, a 48-year-old lecturer at Wau University, has an important plea to the government of President Salva Kiir in Juba. I urge the government to engage the parties concerned in a peace dialogue so that they will resolve their difference in a peaceful way. A middle-aged housewife speaking vernacular in Yei wants to see peace prevail in South Sudan. 
kalamu de asil batal my name is ashagoya i live in malikia village in yei i want the rebels and the government to sit down and agree to restore peace to our country kalamu de asil batal those were voices of citizens of south sudan reporting for channel africa this is james shimanyula Rights Group Human Rights Watch has called for the Central African Republic's government to investigate uniformed army officers who publicly lynched a man they suspected of being a Seleka fighter earlier this week, just after the new president, Catherine Samba Panza, addressed thousands of regrouped military officers. The soldiers slashed the man with machetes, crushed his head, then put the body in the middle of the street, piled tires on it and set it alight. To find out more on this, Komoto Mopulane spoke to Rona Peligal, Deputy Director of the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch. We're very concerned about the violence in the Central African Republic and the human rights abuses that continue to be committed. In this case, the new president, Catherine Sambapanza, was overseeing a ceremony inducting new soldiers into the army. After she left, the soldiers, while in uniform, targeted someone who was not in any uniform, accused him of being a member of the Seleka rebel group, and then lynched him in public, killed him, and brutally mutilated his body, setting it then alight. We believe that this is a very worrying sign about the capacity of the new military to secure the country and to act in a manner that is professional. If we're going to have army officers publicly lynching a man who they suspect of being a Seleka fighter, literally just after the new president has addressed them, expressing her pride, what sort of reflection does this give? This incident, I think, highlights concerns that Human Rights Watch has reported on over the past 10 months. We have been reporting on the many different abuses and atrocities committed by the Seleka. We then started to report on the many acts of retribution by the anti-Balaka militia groups who are predominantly Christian and who use language saying they want to get rid of Muslim residents. We are um, seeing the Seleka now regrouping in parts of the north, and we are still seeing massive abuses by both sides. I think these incidents show that there needs to be much more peacekeeping and humanitarian protection in the Central African Republic by both the um, French forces that are there and by the African Union forces that are also there. We have recently reported on incidents involving Chadian elements of the African Union peacekeeping forces, and we're very worried about them because we see them supporting the Seleka and not being impartial in their peacekeeping. Ultimately, however, we believe that there will be a need for a UN peacekeeping force because resources are not sufficient for what is currently in car. Has the new presidency and the Catherine Sambapanza said anything or responded with regards to that incident? I'm told that she did respond and she did say that the government would hold accountable those who committed these abuses. And if she did in fact say that, um, that's a very good sign. There's, it's obviously clear that any, any, any troops that commit such abuses don't deserve to be in the army. But of course, there has been decades of such violence in some respects in Central African Republic and a lack of accountability 
for the misdeeds of security force personnel, and that's something that will clearly need to change under her administration. Especially because such brutal lynching has almost become a regular occurrence in Bangui, as the violence now is getting out of hand. Absolutely, and securing Bangui is very, very important, as is securing some of the northern towns where the conflict and the violence have been greatest. That was Rona Peligal, Deputy Director of the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, on the line from New York, talking to Khomotsomo Pulani. Over 200 Mauritanians fleeing from the troubled Central African Republic are stranded in Cameroon. The people who, for the most part, are sick and tired say they need urgent help from their government. They have been telling terrible stories of their experiences in the Central African Republic. Our correspondent Muki Kinzaka met them at the Yawunde Nzimalin International Airport and filed this report. The Mauritanians are children less than 13 years old and women. They look weary and hungry after covering long distances from the troubled Central African Republic on foot and motorcycles through bush roads. The 22-year-old mother of two, Kenna Kelly, says most of them are sick. She says there are many of them whose children need treatment. The Mauritanians said when they arrived in Garwa Bulai, a Cameroonian border town with CAR, they pleaded with Cameroonian authorities to inform their government that they were in a desperate situation. 52-year-old businessman Chek Usman told me that they could no longer bear spiraling violence in CAR. He says it is bad there. He adds that there is war, looting, and that people are using machetes to cut others into pieces, and nobody wanted to see him in a Muslim area where he was. 25-year-old Fatimatu Awa says their children were no longer going to school because of the fighting in CAR. She says they have really suffered and that their children have not been going to school. That is why, according to her, they have to leave for their country. Shakira Abdul, who was rushed to the hospital to be treated for wounds she said was inflicted by anti-Balaka fighters, told me that she was returning without her two sons killed two weeks ago. She says so many people are dying there and there are so many gunshots. She says it is not easy to live in such a place where you get up in the morning and find corpses littered on the roads. The best thing to do, according to her, is to escape from such a place. This Thursday morning, Sheriff Ahmed Oud Talet, the Mauritanian Consul for Central African Countries, came to Cameroon from his base in Equatorial Guinea to assure the refugees that their president, Ahmed Abdelaziz, had ordered a special flight to take them home. Uh, he says President Abdelaziz has instructed him to take care of the needs of all of his people fleeing from CAR. He says he has been asked to take them back home and that his country's Minister of External Relations called him to assure him that a Mauritanian special flight was to leave Nuachat to take all of the people back home.
Le ministre des Affaires étrangères, il vient de m'appeler qu'ils sont en train d'apprêter euh, l'avion pour, euh, pour venir ici, pour occuper le restaurant qui sont ici. The refugees say their priority for now is to go back home. They say they will ask their government to give them the financial and moral assistance they need to start building their lives all over again after losing everything. The Central African Republic is now facing unprecedented levels of interreligious conflict between the majority Christian population and the minority Muslims. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Up to 50,000 children in Mali may die of malnutrition this year if they don't receive enough food on time. This warning has come from the top United Nations humanitarian official in the country. Aid agencies in Mali say there are high levels of malnutrition in the country, which is recovering from a conflict with al-Qaeda-linked fighters. The UN humanitarian coordinator for Mali, David Grizzly, says UN radios tells you at Radio's Patrick Maigua that relief workers continue to face challenges as they help the people in need. It's much easier to move around in much of Mali, particularly where the bulk of the population live along the Niger River Valley. In the more extreme northern regions along the periphery of Niger, Algeria, Mauritania, insecurity is still a significant problem and it's very difficult to move in those areas. Fortunately, not so many people live there. So for the bulk of the people, it's much more accessible. However, there are still continued problems of criminality. There's still problems of banditry. There's still reports of revenge type of attacks because of the nature of the conflict that took place in 2012 and 2013. Some of the rural areas outside the major cities, insecurity can also be a problem. So it's a mixed picture. While it's improving, it's still mixed. And has this improvement helped the efforts to help those who are displaced during the war, especially in the north of the country? Well, I think what we've seen is a good movement of people back from a height of over 350,000 people displaced during the conflict down to about 217,000 people today. So that's a clear indication that people are comfortable going back home. I think that's a positive side. Among the refugees, though, the numbers are quite, in proportion, fewer who have gone back. And they continue to have concerns about reintegrating back into Mali in northern Mali. And until that perception changes, that movement will be slow. I think with the expansion of security forces on the ground, including the UN forces, that perception could well change. So we need to be prepared for a much larger movement of refugees back into northern Mali in 2014, as well as a continued movement of IDPs back into the north of Mali. I think it'll be a major challenge for us in 2014. In terms of humanitarian assistance to those who are displaced, what has been the progress? Are you able to access all those who are displaced? In general, yes. I mean, there are the issues of insecurity that you have to be careful, and we have a lot of very good NGOs working on the ground that provide that kind of assistance. So it's not perfect. There are zones where I think we're not getting as much as we should. It's not being stopped completely, but I'm not sure we're reaching everybody yet. So we need to continue to work with those who can help provide security there to expand that security while we continue to make sure to find means to get out to areas we've not been to make sure that we're not missing populations that need assistance, whether they returned as IDPs, whether they returned as refugees. 
You've just launched the appeal for 2014. How much are you looking for and what are the priority areas that need to be addressed? Well, it's a significant appeal of $568 million. The major areas are food assistance and nutrition, but many other areas remain important, including the support to the refugees. But health and water education are all important components of that. Food and nutrition assistance has historically been reasonably well-funded. Some of the others, such as health, water, education, have not been as well-funded. So we're looking to try to find the right to get our donors to contribute in a right balance between these categories so that all aspects of assistance that's required can be provided. And secondly, we're looking at how to get away. The problems in Mali for humanitarian action is not just linked to the conflict. It's also structural. There's malnutrition that uh, is structural in nature. Most of the malnourished children are not in northern Mali. They're in southern Mali. And it can be found in some of the most agriculturally productive regions of Mali. So there's structural causes behind malnutrition. And it's not just access to food. It's access to the right kinds of food at the right time, right kind of medical care. So all of these things need to be worked upon if we're going to address fundamentally the problem of malnutrition in Mali or countries like Mali. One of our efforts is to work with the Malian government, who's quite engaged on this. They would like to see real progress in this regard, not only provide treatment, but also to provide support to deal with the prevention of malnutrition so that this is not a problem that persists every year from here on out. Are there any concerns that you have about the levels of malnutrition in Mali? Yes, it's a very serious issue. It's one of the most serious in the world. So it's important that this be addressed both from a humanitarian point of view in terms of treatment, but also from a structural point of view in terms of addressing those reasons why children become malnourished. They become malnourished under situations of household stress, sometimes lack of food, lack of frequency of meals, lack of quality of food, lack of access to health care, lack of access to clean water. All of this can trigger malnutrition, moderate or even worse, severe malnutrition that can ultimately lead to children dying. UNICEF believes that up to 50,000 children could die in Mali due to a lack of treatment of severe acute malnutrition. So it's important that that be addressed to avoid those kinds of death. But also malnutrition can lead to uh, stunting and other problems that limit one's ability to have a fully productive life. So there's many reasons to work in this area. The person leading efforts to eliminate Syria's chemical weapons stockpiles has indicated that despite delays, she believes they can still meet a June 30th deadline for its complete eradication. Concerns have been raised after the Syrian government missed an intermediate February 5th deadline to have all its declared chemical substances out of the country, but the head of the UN and the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons Mission rejected suggestions that the Syrian government was stalling. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Sigrid Karg says the delays have to be seen in context and that all the necessary logistics to transport the chemicals out of the country are now in place. Intermediate milestones have not been met but uh, delays have, are not insurmountable and that uh, we, we think the deadline of 13th of June can be met. Uh, all equipments and requirements are in country. Um, there is an expectation of swift movement, safe and secure, naturally noting the security conditions uh, in country that are volatile and precarious. 
Krag was speaking after briefing the Security Council that could consider additional measures against Syria if found to be deliberately non-compliant. In-country based destruction also continues because at the end of the day the overall objective of the elimination and destruction of Syria's chemical weapons program is the whole package. Removal is a big and important part of that but there's ongoing destruction in-country which also takes place. The Security Council collectively called on Syria to expedite actions to meet its obligation to transport in a sufficiently accelerated manner all relevant chemicals for removal from its territory. The United States was more pointed through Ambassador Samantha Power. We know the regime has the ability to move these weapons and materials because they have moved them multiple times over the course of this conflict. It is time for the Assad government to stop its foot dragging establish a transportation plan and stick to it. We urge all member states with influence over the regime to persuade it to move forward with the transportation phase. Power also indicated her government would support a council resolution to force the Syrian government to allow greater humanitarian access to the millions of Syrians stuck in besieged towns and cities. In giving even just a small taste of the deplorable uh, uh, conditions on the ground in Syria, which all of you are very familiar with, it is critical that the Security Council move forward uh, in order to uh, uh, signal to the regime that humanitarian access is, is uh, not optional, uh, that it is required. And we are looking at a range of options. We do support uh, a humanitarian resolution, um, as do most uh, member states of the United Nations and we're hopeful that something like that can be achieved. Earlier, the UN Secretariat welcomed reports that parties in Syria had agreed to a humanitarian pause to allow civilians out of and aid into Old Homs City, one of the main flashpoints in the country. Sherman Bryceby's New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na unai. Rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. If you'd like to send us a comment or have any questions about our show, you're welcome to send us an email to info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. You can get a hold of us on our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Tabisolehuko up next with the headlines.
In the news headlines, France is likely to extend its military mission in Central African Republic. Survival International launches a worldwide advertising campaign highlighting Botswana's persecution of Africa's lost hunting Basara people. And the Red Cross says that tens of thousands of people in Nigeria are missing out on vital services because of the conflict. Details at 9 Central African Time. Former South African President Thabo Mbengi is on a visit to the United States to drum up support and expertise for the African Union's high-level panel on illicit financial flows, which he chairs. The panel was established following a resolution of AU Ministers of Finance, Planning and Economic Development in 2011. The panel's mission is to address and make recommendations on how best to stem the illicit outflows of multi-billion from the continental from the continent annually showed Bryce Peace reports it's a matter that has plagued Africa for decades and the African Union is now working to plug the holes that enable this broad-based corruption because of the size of the problem the volume former president Mbeki is chair of the AU's high-level panel on illicit financial flows this matter came up that uh, in fact the continent was losing a lot of resources through this process of the illicit uh, uh, outflow, uh, the illicit outflow of capital from from the continent. And therefore that uh, because of the size of the problem, the volumes of this uh, outflow, it would be important that uh, uh, the continent should have a specific examination of this matter uh, with a view to making recommendations Uh, or at least with a view to taking decisions about what to do about it. The conservative estimate is that at least 50 billion US dollars illegally leaves the continent yearly through tax evasion loopholes, trade misinvoicing and cross-border smuggling among others. A practice that between 1980 and 2009 is said to have cost Africa a staggering 1.2 trillion dollars, a hemorrhaging of the continent's wealth. It's clear that uh, uh, the receiving countries are the developed countries, uh, as well as the tax havens. So we've got to try and understand this matter uh, of these illicit capital outflows out of the continent, both from the point of view of, of we, the exporting continent, uh, and then the receiving countries. So that our recommendations then would have to address both, both ends of this. The panel is visiting several extraction-heavy African countries as case studies and will submit a final report with their recommendations in either June or July this year. But as Mbeki points out, this is a problem not only for Africa. That report, apart from whatever observations uh, we, will, we will make about the phenomenon, must then have a, a, a detailed, detailed proposals as to what, what should be done to respond to this, what should be done by the African continent to respond to this, what should be done by the rest of the world to, to respond to this. They have to address questions of uh, uh, transparency within the financial markets, which is a critical matter uh, in terms of understanding what, what, what's happening with all the necessary instruments that you, you would have for that. And there are clearly many initiatives that are already taking, taking place which address that transparency question. 
He warned that Africa could face capacity problems in understanding these intricate legal and tax systems, but welcomed the recognition from African governments and the African Development Bank of the need for technical capacity to investigate and track complex financial and legal transactions. Sherman Bricepies at the United Nations, New York. The South African government has called on all citizens not to abuse their right to demonstrate. Deputy Minister in the Presidency, Obed Bapela, was speaking at a workshop hosted by the Southern African Liaison Office on the lessons learned from elections in the region. This comes as more and more cases of protesters being killed by the police continue to make headlines. South Africa will this year hold its fifth general elections. Tutongo Beni has more. Deputy Minister in the South African Presidency, Obed Bubela, says it's every South African citizen's constitutional right to demonstrate. However, this right shouldn't be abused by destroying buildings. I want to call on South Africans that the right to demonstrate, the right to protest is a constitutional guaranteed right, but don't abuse it. Do not destroy property. Don't ban your libraries, your schools, your clinics, because the very delivery that has happened in your communities, we are now destroying it. And I think that is something that South Africans must really take note of and begin to say, is it the right just for me to be hit, to go violent? The workshop organized by the Southern African Liaison Office titled A Review of Lessons Learned from the Elections in Southern and Eastern Africa in 2013 was attended by civil society organizations from countries including Swaziland, Zimbabwe and Lesotho. Various representatives from these countries and the United Kingdom also attended the discussion speaking on South Africa's preparations for the forthcoming general elections. Bobella said they hope to attract more young people this time around. And we hope to reach them over this weekend to ensure that they register in bigger numbers. In the previous voter registration, 32% new voters uh, registered. And we want to pass that 32% to 70%. If we can capture 70% of them registering, it will be a great record of no voters you know, coming in to register. So this weekend is that push to move from 32 to about 70%. Director at South Africa's Institute for Global Dialogue, Dr. Spamandla Zondi, raised questions on what democracy has meant since it was introduced globally. There's been a growth in the number of elections and the frequency of elections in the past 20 years, especially after the Cold War but there has not been a corresponding improvement in the quality of lives of people. So democracy has not delivered the dividend. It is hard to find a country where democracy has led in itself to a better life. It has led to a sense of excitement, of course, and actually even raised hopes. Zondi said African states have maintained how they were attained even after they were decolonized. The truth is, the African state is built on, built on the architecture of violence, deep-seated violence and deep-seated anger. Of course, Mugabe can manipulate it. Of course, somebody else can manipulate it. But the truth is, an African state was created violently, maintained violently, and handed over without exercising it of violence.
It was handed over to Africans in what was called administrative independence in the 1960s. But Dr. Zondu also raised an eyebrow on the correlation between freedom and democracy. The African challenge for the past almost five centuries has been to realize freedom in order to enable people to live full lives. Whether it was a struggle against imperialism, struggle against colonialism, and struggles against the maldevelopment that takes place under globalization, the struggle has been to realize a better life. But democracy gives them an opportunity to choose between one set of elite and another set of elite. And that leads to a disjuncture. They fought for freedom, they got democracy. It's an anomaly. That's Dr. Sipamanda Zondi, Director of South Africa's Institute for Global Dialogue and reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tutongo Bene in Pretoria. Townships in South Africa, favelas in Brazil and slums in India have become new stopping off points on the tourist trail as visitors seek to learn about a country's poverty-stricken areas. Observers are concerned about tourist motivations, many asking if these tourists are seeking leisured and adventurous experiences and if this could spark entrepreneurship and help overcome long-held prejudices against people living in poor areas of the city. For more insight on this, Khomoto Mopulane spoke to Dr. Fabian Frenzel, a senior research associate at the University of Johannesburg School of Tourism and Hospitality, who recently gave a lecture in Johannesburg. I think it has to do that when places have bad reputation, which is not, you know, not the case anymore with townships, for example, and so much uh, as it used to be. But if they're kind of off-limits, if you can't go there like it was in the apartheid period, or nowadays if there's areas like Hillbrow where lots of people think it's too dangerous to go, in fact, some people will be like, actually, I'd like to see that. They turn around the opposite. They tend to be not from the place. This is why tourists are interesting in this. You know, tourists tend to not really know about bad reputation, local bad reputation. They are more curious. Also, they have not other things to do. You know, they come... Have, have a bit of spare time and they're discovering something new, something to tell about. When someone comes home, imagine, you know, from a trip in South Africa and he says, oh yeah, I've been to, you know, everybody expects them to tell stories about big game or things that you associate with South Africa. But if they can tell a new story, if they say, oh, I've been in this like really exciting neighborhood where lots of creative stuff is, that is uh, that's also a good story. So that's a motivation. There's also a motivation that goes around the lines of uh, interested and concerned uh, about inequality, and poverty, and, you know, there might want to help they might want to understand the country better because often what you what you see as a tourist of a country is of course an image that is created by a tourism agency it's a facade more it doesn't necessarily cover like all sorts of aspects in particular sort of negative ethics problems are not normally advertised so much but tourists are very keen on you know not to put the country down but like to not get a wrong impression or to to understand better where they are to kind of move beyond the advertising as it were and has this interest always been there or is it one of those that's growing just over the years? I think it's always been there. What's growing is, is international mobility and tourism. But if you look at the 19th century, cities like London, New York had huge slum areas, very similar structurally. People coming to the city to work, not really finding any housing, set up their own housing on places, land they squatted, very similar to today, just in a, in a different scale, different numbers. Surprisingly, already then, we find uh, people from the richer parts of the city. It's not such an international phenomenon there, but from the richer parts of the same city, rich areas of London, rich areas of New York, actually venturing out to 
find out what's going on there. Most of the time they will be maybe scared, but many will also be curious. You know? So definitely there is sustainability. It will grow over the years more than what it is Today. I think there is. It's about seeing the potential of places that are in some way still have, in a sense, that kind of special notion that they offer places for people to, in fact, set up business quite easily because there is nothing yet. You know, there is no competition for like places that uh, that you can start anew. So there's there's potential for it to grow, particularly, of course, with the overall number growing. I mean, as, as we see. I mean, who knows? Maybe we can't afford to fly around so much anymore for climate change reasons eventually, and that will obviously stop. But uh, other than that, we see numbers of international tourists and actually mobility of all sorts increasing all over the years. Every, everyone seems to be on the move. A very interesting point you make, Dr. Fenzel, um, during your presentation. You said that Johannesburg is being perceived as sort of a dangerous place. How is South Africa at large being perceived internationally? You know, it's very, very difficult to gauge these things. It, it depends on a tourist. So I spoke to a professional yesterday who said she went to an American trade fair. She goes to trade fairs all over to, mm. you know, advertise her tours of the city center of Johannesburg, actually. And she realized when she went to the United States that there are people who were like, oh, Johannesburg, I don't think that's going to work. But then they do lots of tours to Cape Town or the Garden Route. I think overall South Africa as a country is, is, is highly attractive and, 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 and very much asked for um, as a destination. Johannesburg itself faces face a few more challenges. And it is, of course, people come here mostly for business uh, currently. They're not like your classical leisure tourists, but even those uh, we should not have to underestimate. There's so many. That was Dr. Fabian Frenzel, Senior Researcher Associate at the University of Johannesburg School of Tourism and Hospitality, talking to Komoto Mopulane. It's 8.44 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Wisani Matabula, an unfortunate, unfortunate incident with the miners of Harmony Gold. You know, and, and, and at a very um, difficult time. At a very difficult time. Remember yesterday we were talking about uh, miners wanting more money. Yes. So at the back of the, uh, those strikes and them demanding a living wage, a better living wage, and then this happens. I think it's a wake-up call for for uh, mining companies mm. to say safety must come first. Yes. We had uh, Patrice Mutsipe saying that, yes, it's, uh, safety is of utmost importance, but they need to really uh, put uh, their, their, ma- their, their, their money where their mouth is. Well, we we are going to keep watching this one to make sure to find out where everything ends up and then what what the final result what will final, be, yeah, you know, and, and what the impact of this particular incident during the strike action will have. Will have mm. also, you know, South African uh, mines are like the deepest in the world. Yes. So, which means you must have um, more uh, safety precautions than other mines. They can't compare themselves with Australian mines, which. Oh. Uh, are not that deep because uh. there's still a lot of reserves. Yes. We have almost exhausted our reserves, so we we're mining deep, 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 and into into the bowels of the earth, yes. which demands more security. Yeah, give us an update. All right.
South African Airways has entered into an agreement with Virgin Australia that will see the airline expand its access in the country. SAA spokesperson Kendi Pohledi says uh, SAA customers will gain new travel choices to primary markets across Australia via Virgin's extensive network and hubs in Perth and Melbourne. In addition, people travelling to Africa from Australia will have access to SAA routes. And former South African President Thabo Mbeki is on a visit to the United States to drum up support and expertise for the African Union's high-level panel on illicit financial flows, which he chairs. The panel was established following a resolution of AU Ministers of Finance, Planning and Economic Development in 2011. Sherwin Bryce Peace reports. It's a matter that has plagued Africa for decades. And the African Union is now working to plug the holes that enable this broad-based corruption. Because of the size of the problem. The Former President Thabo Mbeki is chair of the AU's high-level panel on illicit financial flows. This matter came up that, uh, in fact, the continent was losing a lot of resources. Mozambique is close to finalizing a new fiscal regime for its mining and petroleum sectors and may raise royalty taxes for coal, its key export commodity. Currently, royalty taxes for coal stands at 3%, lower than the 5% of base metals and 10% of diamonds. Mozambique wants a flat rate of 32% on capital gains tax on transactions in the mining and energy sectors this year. And the main tax incentives for mining companies are five-year exemptions for value-added tax and import duties for equipment and materials. The African Development Bank has approved Swaziland's country strategy paper for 2014 to 2018, which focuses on promoting economic growth and improving living conditions of the people. The document underscores the fact that Swaziland's categorization as a lower middle income country masks severe social challenges such as pervasive poverty and inequality. It cites the high prevalence of HIV AIDS and its impact on human human development as well as the sharp decline in revenues from the South African Customs Union in 2011 as evidence of uh, Swaziland's economic vulnerabilities. And Ghana's currency, the city, has weakened to a record as the central bank set limits on foreign exchange transactions and ordered that sales and purchases be done in the local currency. This in a bid to halt the second worst decline among African currencies this year. Brett Wilkinson reports. The city fell 1.2% to 2.5 per dollar yesterday evening in the capital Accra. This is the lowest since at least May 1994 when Bloomberg began compiling the data. The currency has slumped 23% in the past year, making it Africa's worst performer after the South African rand. The world's second biggest cocoa producer joins other emerging markets taking steps to halt currency declines. Turkey, India and South Africa unexpectedly raised interest rates in the face of reduced Federal Reserve stimulus. The CDs drop pushed inflation to a year high in December as companies sought dollars to pay for imports. 
Financial indicators, the US dollar at 11.9 South African rands at 8.92 Botswana Pulas and 5.56 Zambian Guaches. Also trading at 0.61 to the British pound and 0.73 to the euro. Commodities, gold $1,255, platinum $1,372, a fine ounce and the price of Brent crude oil $1,795 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. Thank you, Isani. Tami Kuza? Yep. Seven series. Fantastic performance this morning. You know, they are waiting for England. I think the match was started half past um, 10, uh-huh. Central African time. Uh-huh. They've beaten Portugal. They've beaten Wales, which is a fantastic performance. They are looking for a third consecutive title in Wellington. Mm. Not even in Australia, in Wellington, in New Zealand. Okay, we're looking forward to this one. Give us an update. Thanks for joining us and uh, welcome back. Let's start with soccer. Nigeria's Super Eagles coach Stephen Keshi is said to be on the collision course with his employers, the Nigerian Football Federation, as he is reportedly to have rejected the Nigerian Football Federation's offer of a foreign assistant. Instead, Keshi is requesting the reinstatement of his former right-hand man, Sylvanas Okpala. Keshi currently has Daniel Amokachi as his coaching staff and previously worked with Sylvanas Okpala. Para, a former teammate during their playing days, who was released of his duties after the 2013 Africa Cup of Nations victory. The governing body gave Keshi free reign in the search of an international assistant, but the tactician insisted the only addition to his team that he has approved of was Okpala, which the Nigerian Football Federation refused to sanction. And now back home, the president of the South African Football Association, Denis Jordan, says that the three-day gathering by their national executive committee members has agreed to embark on a major overall of South African football in the country. This follows the early exit of the senior national team from the Chen tournament. Jordan says that they have thrown away the drawing board and starting on a new slate. Jordan says that they want to strengthen the youth development of all teams. We have translated into a program that which we said over a long time, that we must focus on development of youth teams, we must focus on women's football, we must reintroduce interprovincial tournaments for the juniors, we must improve the junior leagues, the regulations, we must look for financial support, and meaning sponsorship, for our second division. In local football, Golden Arrows coach Mark Harrison says that his players lose position easily and they are not aggressive enough. Harrison made the announcement after his team lost 2-0 to Mamelodi Sundowns at Loftus Stadium on Wednesday. It was Arrows' sixth defeat in a row and according to Harrison, they need to improve on every position. You know, we've got to improve all round, I think, you know. Uh, we've got to get a little bit meaner 
Uh, we've, we're too nice at times. We've got to be a bit better on the ball than we were tonight. We gave the ball away too easily at times. Uh, so, you know, we've got to work on that, work on keeping possession better, work on getting tighter, putting the foot in a little bit more into, you know, into teams and, and stopping them having time and space to play. And there's only one match for this evening. Ice Cape Town will host Bidvestvet at the Cape Town Stadium and the kickoff is at 8 p.m. Central African time. And now in rugby, the South African Springbok 7 side, the Blitzboke, have started their New Zealand 7s campaign on a high note by easily winning their first two games. The Blitzboke beat Wales 26-0 in their first game of the day in Wellington before outclassing Portugal 27-5. They take on England in their final group game at half past 10 Central African time. The Blitzboke headed into the weekend's event at West Park Stadium looking for a third successive tournament title in what would be a first for South Africans. Thanks to the recent cup victories in Las Vegas and Port Elizabeth, the Blixboke currently enjoy a slender one-point lead over seven World Series champion New Zealand at the top of the standings. And finally in golf, Scotland Craig Lee carried an almost flawless round of 65 to join a bunch of leaders on seven under par on day one of the eighth edition of the Joburg Open at the Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Club. According to Lee, the score could have been much bigger after missing several chances. Yeah, I mean, um, I've played really nice golf for that, so uh, I'm delighted uh, with uh, with the score that uh, I've managed to put together. Actually, I hit a lot of uh, really nice shots, uh, especially in the front nine. I hit a lot of shots into sort of 15 feet. Uh, I didn't actually hold as many as I probably could have, uh, and I missed from about three foot or nine as well. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa Central African Republic government urged to probe human rights abuses and South Sudan peace talks set to resume in Addis Ababa. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine at the Sa- for today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za Follow us on Twitter at, at Channel Africa One or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is my way with Nanan.